Well, thank you, Natalie, for reading that portion of Luke's gospel to us. On a scale from one to ten, how insane is your life at the moment? One is you're not here, but you are sort of here because you're listening in, streaming the sermon while you laze on a beach in the Maldives with nothing but blue skies, no worries, and two weeks of holiday on the radar. 10 is you're here, but you're not really here because your heart and your mind are being pressured from nine different directions and it's taken a great deal of effort just to physically show up this morning. What's your score? Likely not one, hopefully not 10, but probably higher than lower, eh? When the insanity ratchets up, our tendency is to seek safety, to seek security, a place of sanity and rest, isn't it? Though the way we pursue that is often by checking out, distracting ourselves, numbing ourselves, pulling the duna over our head and denying reality. How's that working out for us? And what factor does faith or or the lack of faith play in that as we stumble on trying to navigate our crazy lives? Luke's going to help us think that through this morning. Let's pray as we begin. Father God, would you please help us by your Spirit that these words would sink deeply into our hearts for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you can find the outline for today's sermon in your service bulletin. We'll pull it up on the screen here, hopefully, as well. There we go. We'll begin in Luke chapter 8, verse 22. From chaos to calm, one day Jesus says to his friends, let's go for a sail. They hop in, push off from shore, the boat rocks with the gentle waves, and Jesus falls asleep. The weather wakes up, a squall descends on the lake, the wind is wailing, the water is writhing, and the unbridled fury of this storm bears down on the disciples. Their boat isn't built for this battering. It's getting swamped and they think, we are going down with the ship. While they are in great danger, Jesus must be having a great nap because he is still asleep. Most of us know someone who can sleep through anything. Maybe that's Jesus, can snooze right through a hurricane. But the disciples are terrified. Master, master, we are going to drown. And in verse 24, Luke records the most incredible event in the most matter-of-fact way. Jesus got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided and all was calm. Jesus doesn't stress. He simply speaks and the storm is silenced. The howling wind is shushed. The water becomes like glass. 
chaos flees at Jesus' command, and now there is great calm. Jesus breaks the stillness with one piercing question. See it there in verse 25. Where is your faith? The disciples, fearful, amazed, bewildered, ask each other, who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. And remember, this was all Jesus' idea in the first place, right? It's his suggestion. Did you see that in verse 22? Let us go over to the other side of the lake. Has Jesus checked the weather forecast? Of course he has. Jesus knows what he is taking his disciples into. I don't think this is an accident. Jesus deliberately, on purpose, he leads his disciples into and then through the storm. How come? Because it's often through danger. It is often through difficulty that the essential question of our faith is brought to the surface. Notice Jesus does not ask, do you have faith? Because every single one of us here, every person on this planet is putting our faith in something. It might be yourself, it might be your position, your reputation, your earning potential, your friends, your influence, your health, whatever. We are all putting our faith in something. Faith always has an object, and so the question is not, do you have faith, but rather, where is your faith? For the disciples, the object of their faith is literally being fleshed out before them. Jesus tames the wind and the waves. They call Jesus master, and yes, indeed he is, yet they are still plumbing the depths of his Mastery, as are we. What storms have you been through? What storms are you in? What storms lie on your horizon? Where is your faith in the storms of life? Is Jesus at the forefront of your heart and mind, or is he forgotten, neglected, blown away by the winds of this world? If so, that'd be a shame, because I'm not sure where else you will find someone who can safely see you through from chaos to calm. From chaos to calm. Next, we come from destruction to restoration. Verse 26. The disciples, they are still scratching their heads when their boat hits the shore. And no sooner has Jesus planted his feet on firm ground than chaos greets him in the form of a demon-possessed man. No clothes, no cleanness, no home, no hope. He's taken up residence in the tombs, but this guy can't bury his pain. He's so far gone that even his name is corrupted. He's called Legion because many demons had gone into him. 
Metal chains, armed guards, they are useless against the demons that have seized him again and again and driven him into desolation. And yet this man, a lost cause if there ever was one, did you see where he's at? He now finds himself at Jesus' feet in a position of submission. He knows who Jesus is the son of the most high God. And the demons in this man know who's in charge. They beg Jesus' permission to enter a bunch of swine instead of being sent into the abyss. And Jesus allows it. He says, yeah, and I'll tell you what, even I wouldn't touch that bacon. As you can appreciate, it's It's not every day that a sizable herd of demon-possessed pigs has a death race to the bottom of a lake. But that's what happened, according to verse 33. It's no surprise that topic was totally trending amongst the locals because a whole crowd comes to see for themselves what in the world has happened. And we'll take a moment here. Let me put this question out there. What's the deal with the demon bacon. Why the pigs? Did you wonder this? Jesus could have ordered them into the abyss. How come he didn't? I think he wants to show us something. What do you reckon that man, picture that demon-possessed man, what do you reckon he was thinking as he watched those pigs filled with demons the very demons that had possessed him hurl themselves into the water and drown. I reckon he was thinking, that could have been me. That would have been me except for Jesus. Here's what Jesus is helping us to see. Left unchecked, the trajectory of our chaotic broken, messed up lives is this headlong descent to destruction. And it is only the gracious intervention of the Lord Jesus into our lives that protects us from a similar fate and produces in us true restoration. Back to the crowd in verse 35. They come to Jesus, and what they find gives them the fright of their lives. What fills them with fear? A raging, naked, out-of-control, demon-possessed man? No. That same man, now sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind. That's the sort of transformation that Jesus brings from destruction to restoration. It all seems too much for the crowd, though. Take a look at verse 37. Then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. They're not the only ones who've felt unsure, paralyzed, apprehensive, even afraid when it comes to Jesus, are they? Perhaps you find yourself in a similar state. If so, will you invite Jesus to stay? Or will you insist that he leave? 
The people of the Gerasenes, they roll up the welcome mat, say, see ya, don't call us, we'll call you, and lock the door. It's quite sad, though Jesus is quite polite. If you ask him to leave, he will. Be careful, then, what you ask for. Because apart from Jesus, those people will ultimately suffer the same fate as their pigs. Before Jesus leaves, the man says, hey, I want to go with you. And Jesus says, actually, you've got gospel work to do right here. See his words in verse 39. Return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man goes and tells not just his household, he tells every man and his dog or pig, the entire town, what, did you see this, what Jesus has done for him. In his newly cured, restored, saved state, the man has grasped something of this profound reality, that Jesus is God. Third, from death to life. We're at verse 40. Jesus returns across the lake to a sea of people. One man in the crowd is determined to see him. Jairus, though a ruler of the synagogue, has a problem that is too big for his pay grade. He seeks Jesus out. He finds him. He falls at his feet and begs Jesus for help because his only daughter, 12 years old, 12 years old, is dying. Can you see Jairus' desperation as he pleads with Jesus to come to his house? Can you see that? And Jesus goes with Jairus. But it's slow going. The crowds are crushing. And something happens that stops Jesus in his tracks. We'll come back to that story in a minute. They haven't gotten far when a messenger arrives and delivers the four words that Jairus has dreaded hearing the most. Your daughter is dead. The messenger serves the ruler Jairus. He knows authority. And he knows it is no use battling the authority of death. Don't bother the teacher anymore, he advises. Let's not waste his time. Forget it. Jesus disagrees. Look at his plea to Jairus in verse 50. Don't be afraid. Just believe, and she will be healed. In other words, have faith, and she'll be saved. Jesus journeys to Jairus' house, and the scene when he arrives, it is utter commotion. Weeping, wailing, mourning the hallmarks of death. Jesus enters into that chaos and says, Stop wailing. Don't weep. She's not dead, but asleep. An insensitive, lame joke? No, just a statement of strength. To Jesus, death is no more hold on a person than to sleep. And look what Jesus does in verse 54. He takes the girl's hand in his and says, My child, get up. Jesus' words 
rouse her from the nightmare of death. And straight away she stands up. Turns out being raised from the dead really takes it out of you. So Jesus says, find her some food. She's really alive. Friends, how robust is your faith in the midst of circumstances that are terrible and terrifying? When distress and despair are right there on your doorstep, is your inclination towards terror or trust in Jesus? He says, don't be afraid, just believe. Jesus is much more than a teacher or even a healer. He is the Savior, the one who calls people from death to life. Number four, from isolation to community. Back to verse 43. What stops Jesus in his tracks? A woman in the crowd who has no business being there because she is socially and religiously unclean. She's lived under an exceedingly harsh master for a very long time. Constant bleeding, suffering, sorrow. And the best efforts of humanity have not helped a bit. Her last hope is just to get close enough to Jesus to brush her outstretched fingers across the fibers of his clothing. That's her plan. She approaches Jesus. She does it. She touches the edge of his cloak. And immediately, her bleeding stopped. Contact with Jesus. Think about this. Contact with Jesus fixes In a microsecond, what evil has been working on for 12 long years? Jesus realizes something has happened. Who touched me, he asks. Peter thinks this is a ridiculous thing to ask. It seems like everyone is touching Jesus, though Jesus says again, someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. What a fascinating comment, hey? Jesus is not a magician. Have we got that clear? He's not a magician. In order for this woman to be healed, something must be transferred from Jesus. Her healing requires an expenditure, an exertion, a personal cost to Jesus. It's a cost he's willing to pay. His power overcomes her impurity completely. The woman owns up. She's got nowhere to go except the feet of Jesus. She falls before him and her whole life story, a desperate, awkward tale of bleeding and frustration and isolation just comes tumbling out of her mouth as her body trembles. Perhaps she's thinking, if Jesus finds out who I am, how unclean I am, He'll be repulsed. He will take back what he's given. He won't want anything to do with me. And maybe some of us here have had similar suspicions. Jesus listens, and then he delivers his final word 
on the matter. Jesus wants there to be no doubt how he deals with unclean, shame-filled, less-than-put-together outcasts who humbly come to him. Notice how tenderly Jesus speaks to her in verse 48. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. She came in chaos. She goes in peace. Jesus commits this woman back to society. He commends her faith. And he confirms that what she felt in her body, that was not just a feeling, that was the real deal. What this woman gets, it is so much more than simply a physical cure. She receives relational and spiritual wholeness. Through Jesus, she moves from isolation to community. And now we come to from the penalty of sin to the peace of salvation. Chaos, destruction, death, isolation. They are less the exception and more the rule in our broken world, aren't they? Even here, even in Perth, 2023. They are the effects of sin, products of humanity rejecting the kingdom of God in favor of the kingdom of self. And like the people of the Gerasenes, at one point or another, we've all acted like we're better off without Jesus. But all that's gotten us is fractured lives, a shattered relationship with God. And there's only one way for our lives and for that relationship to be healed. It is if Jesus ultimately takes the penalty of sin, if he takes that chaos, that destruction, death and isolation onto himself at the cross. And that's what he does. And we benefit. From chaos to calm, from destruction to restoration, from death to life, from isolation to community. This is a comprehensive, four-dimensional picture of what Jesus offers, what he holds out to each one of us. In essence, Jesus is able to take us from the penalty of sin to the peace of salvation. What does that mean for us today? What's the, the cash value takeaway for us today? We're going to answer that through recapping the four episodes we've just been through. In our first episode, Jesus' interrogation of his disciples, it consists of one question, where is your faith? They are fearful. The disciples are afraid. Next, we see an illustration in two parts. Fear, remember, prevails in that crowd in the Gerasenes, though the man who Jesus cured, he exhibits faith. Then Jesus' exhortation to Jairus is this, don't be afraid, just believe. Forsake your fear for faith. And though afraid, the woman does just that in our final episode. Jesus' declaration to her, 
It must have been the sweetest words she's ever heard. Your faith has healed you. And the summary informs the application then for us. When it comes to Jesus, will you allow yourself to be seized by fear? Afraid, apathetic, even antagonistic towards Jesus? Or will you place your faith in the one who seizes you by the hand to pull you out of the jaws of sin and into the joy of salvation? Will you make the move from fear to faith? What's holding you back? Let's think back to that story of the the bleeding woman. Did you find it curious how Luke includes that story right in the middle of the story about Jairus' daughter? In verse 42, Jairus' daughter is dying. By verse 49, she is dead. And between those verses, Luke pivots to record Jesus' interaction with that bleeding woman. Why the narrative inception? Why the story within the story? Here's the logic. I think it shows us the right response to Jesus. It highlights for us how to live between dying and death. Between dying and death, that is a space we all occupy. Some of us sense that more keenly than others. Though regardless of how you feel, each one of us is 25 or so minutes closer to their death now than when I began this sermon. So how should we live between dying and death? The woman shows us. Take this in, friends. Hear this. The only sane way, the only reasonable way To occupy the space between dying and death is to trust Jesus. Faith in Jesus Christ, that is how we inhabit the present. That's how we take our next breath in the space between dying and death. And we've seen four divine demonstrations that Jesus is supremely worthy of our faith. Chaos to calm, destruction to restoration, death to life, isolation to community. The last thing I'd love to point out, did you pick up what the demon-possessed man, what Jairus, what the woman all do when they meet Jesus? Did you notice this? Each one of them falls at Jesus' feet. Their lives are a mess. Their world is breaking. Insanity is at level 10. Everything is chaos. It is crazy. But here's what they discover. That there, low, fallen at the feet of Jesus, is the perfect place to find sanity. You may feel this world is insane, and that is so true, but it's nothing new. Where do you find sanity? At the feet of Jesus. 
Where do you find calm amidst the chaos, wholeness and wellness at the feet of Jesus? Because he's the one who fundamentally shifts our reality from the penalty of sin to the peace of salvation. Where do you go to find someone worth putting your faith in? It's the feet of Jesus. And where do you go when your faith feels feeble? You go to the feet of Jesus. And so, friends, we'll finish here. Here's what I want to send us out with. Here's what I want you to walk away with this morning. The home of sanity. The home of saving faith is at the feet of Jesus Christ. Amen.